0: Well, greetings to you from Faith Community Baptist Church. It's a delight to be with you once again in worship. Before the reading and the preaching of the word, join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that we are weak and we are needy creatures. Even those of us who are in Christ, upheld by your spirit, grow faint and weak. So at this time, we ask for grace to continue to worship you in the hearing of your word. Help us to receive it as what it really is, the word of Christ to us, the word of Christ for us and about us. O conform us more into the image of your Son according to his humanity, that we might grow in faith in hope and love, unto perfect beatitude, that this Sabbath day our hearts will be set upon that beatific vision, that beautiful vision of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Through Christ we ask for grace. Amen. Hear the reading of the word. Lamentations chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1 and read, through verse 24 this is the inspired and the inerrant and the infallible word of God I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath he has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day he has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, He shouts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bare line in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces, He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel, covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his holy word. The title of this message is, When it Seems Your Hope Has Perished. You know, it's been said that funerals are never the happiest of occasions. Even when there is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, for honest, there's still the grief and the pain of the left behind. Christians still grieve. But though we grieve, we grieve as those without hope. We do not grieve as those without hope. But I ask you, have you ever heard the poems of the grieving? Have you ever listened to poems at a funeral? Have you heard grief personified, anguish described with imagery? This book of Lamentations is just that. It's a bunch of funeral poems. This book was most likely written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And here we see through funeral poems a nation that was once a proud monument to God's glory. And we see here now they're just straining to pick themselves up from an enormous heap of rubble. What had long been threatened has now bursted in full fury upon the nation. Think about it. Forty years of consistent idolatry. Forty years of only seeking help from the princes of the world. Forty years of refusing the one true and living God. Forty years of despising the need for repentance. Forty years of refusing to turn to the Lord in obedience. What we find in this book is not so much a description of historical events, What we find here are expressions of uncontrollable grief. And yet, these expressions are given by those who trust in the inscrutable purpose of God. Those who care for the well-being of His people. I want you to consider the first three chapters of Lamentations with me. Just listen. Think of Lamentations chapter 1. There we have a prophet An individual like you and me, writing concerning a city comprised of individuals. In chapter 1, we find a funeral poem about a city. And the city is personified as a woman with vivid imagery. Lady Jerusalem here is a lonely widow, a queen reduced to a maiden, a treacherous wife betrayed by adulterous lovers, one abused and without clothes, and a ritually unclean woman. The description here is graphic, and yet the description is of individuals like you and me. Think of Lamentations too. While the focus of the chapter, the first chapter, is the funeral poem about a city, here in the second we find a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Note this is a city of individuals. Even toward the end of chapter 118, Jeremiah speaks on behalf of this people. Those who remain alive in this city. And there he says, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandments. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. The second poem we find in chapter 2 expresses grief concerning who? But the Lord. Because it is the Lord who brought the grief. You see, though it was the Babylonians who invaded, who overcame and destroyed, It was the Lord who was at work punishing a nation of individuals for their idolatry. And those who remain are left grieving. The Babylonian forces led by King Nebuchadnezzar invaded for the third time. They sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, the king's palace, all the great houses, and the city walls. But Jeremiah had prophesied about this very judgment of the Lord in Jeremiah 36. Listen to these verses, and note these are words of judgment on individuals in Judah. Therefore, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants For their iniquity, I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. So here in Lamentations 2, we have an individual, Jeremiah, grieving over a multitude of individuals in Judah. And while he acknowledges that what has come, they deserve for their sin, he sympathizes with the fact that those who remain are still the very people of God. And so he pleads with the Lord on their behalf. Here we find a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Think of Lamentations 3. We have observed in chapter 1 a funeral poem about a city. Chapter 2, a funeral poem about a righteous punisher. Here we have a funeral poem about hope. A funeral poem about Hope. Once again, we have an individual, Jeremiah, continuing to identify with the very grief and affliction of the people. But here the prophet is personified as the man. Imagery shifted from the woman, chapter 1, to the man here now in chapter 3. And though the imagery of this poem goes from darkness to death, and the picture cannot get any worse, in verses 22 to 23 we find hope. Finally, in chapter 3, verse 58, we read that the Lord has redeemed His life. My brothers and sisters, it should already be clear that these poems concern individuals like you and me. Individuals under affliction. And though the suffering and anguish we observe here is due to the people's transgression, these poems are a reminder of the excruciating anguish that characterizes life in this fallen world. The anguish we experience, whether that be for one, the consequences of our sins or the sins of others. Though we might prefer not to remember or reflect upon the morbid depictions that we read of here, the pain is real. And we need to be reminded what we must avoid. And what is that? Suffering due to the consequences of our sin. Many in the church suffer a life ravaged by sin and they're living in pain. And some are not willing to acknowledge these sins like the many that remained alive in Judah. They're undergoing excruciating pain and their soul is in a state of numbness. Still others may be present this morning who are suffering pain, but not due to the sins they have committed, perhaps the sins committed against them. Perhaps you're in anguish this morning due to facing the world the flesh, and the devil all week. Whether you're the sufferer who has sinned or the sufferer sinned against. Whether this is you right now or you later. Beloved, you need to believe this word being proclaimed to you. Because it is not merely the words of men. It is the word of Christ to you. And it's the word of Christ for you wherever you are in this life. this is why... I ask you this morning, what will you do when it seems your hope is perished? What will you do when you walk in the darkness, as it were, and you cannot see the light? What will you do? The main point of our text this morning is when it seems your hope is perished, recall, the Lord is my portion Therefore, I hope in him. When it seems your hope is perished, recall, say in your soul, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. This one main point will be unfolded in two parts. First, when it seems your hope is perished. Verses 19 through 20. When it seems your hope is perished. And second, recall the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him, verses 21 to 24. First, when it seems your hope is perished. We see in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Remember my affliction and the roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. It's helpful to consider here the big picture of this third funeral poem. It can be broken down into... Two sections. First, hope perished from the Lord. Hope perished from the Lord. That's verses 1 through 20. Second, hope restored in the Lord. Hope restored in the Lord. Verses 21 to 66. We don't have the time this morning to walk through the entire poem, but keep this big picture in mind. Because there's a progression to this funeral poem. It goes from darkness and death to the redemption of life. Our text in verses 19 to 24 is really a microcosm, a smaller picture of that bigger picture we see throughout this entire book. One could say it is a summary of the progress that can be seen throughout all of these poems. Think about chapter 1, that first poem. In verse 1, we read, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations, the princes among the provinces has become a slave. We have a lonely city. Think about chapter 5. This fifth funeral poem. Chapter 5, verse 19. We go from a lonely city. To the Lord on his throne. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Our text in chapter 3, verse 19, begins with the word remember. This word encapsulates what all the words of anguish and sorrow and suffering have sought to express. Consider here the remembering. What is it sought to express? Oh Lord, see. We see the same kind of language in chapter 1 verse 9, "Oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted." In chapter 1 verse 11, "See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned." In chapter 1 verse 20, it says, "See, O Lord, that I am in distress." And in chapter 2, verse 20, See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. You see, the word remember describes the vantage point of the sufferer. It seems. It seems as if hope is gone. You see here, the prophet Jeremiah so identify with the people of Judah who remain alive that what could have been the words, Our affliction... Our roaming, notice they're turned to my affliction, my roaming, the people's affliction and roaming are Jeremiah's affliction and roaming. And their cry to the Lord to remember is his cry to the Lord to remember. The affliction and roaming have already been described earlier. They refer to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem through the agency of the Babylonians, but by the hand of Yahweh. Still, the grief continues. As we read in chapter 2, verse 11 through 19, the suffering remains with tearing eyes, with troubled hearts. The faint of hunger roam in the city. False and deceptive visions of prophets loom throughout the entire city, receiving taunts from all who pass by, taunts from all their enemies. And what are they told to do? Chapter 2, verse 19, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. So what do the people of Judah do? They cry out, remember my affliction and roaming. The word remember shows up a second time in verse 20. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. The Suffering has been so great that it continues to leave their hearts bowed down before it. When it said that it is the task of the spirit to hold the body upright. To turn it toward heaven. What do we see here? It's inclined toward the very earth. You know, if the spirit is bent down under a weight, there is nothing for it, but that the body will be entirely bowed down, prostrate before it. And that's what is being described here. The spirit remembers, and as it remembers, it brings the whole person so very low. Recall what was just said in chapter 3, verse 18. It was so low, and I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. That's how low it was. It seems as if hope is gone. It seems as if I only walk in the dark. It seems. That's the remembering. Notice the affliction. The affliction is described by wormwood and the gall, or bitterness. What is interesting is that this is the third time these words are used. First in chapter 3, verse 5, then in 3.15, and now here. And remember, the prophet Jeremiah is identifying with the people, making their miseries his miseries, their sorrows his very own. Verse 1 says, I am the man who has seen affliction. In verse 5, he says he can say that he has been surrounded with bitterness and woe. In verse 15, he says that the Lord has filled him with bitterness and made him drink wormwood. To drink wormwood would be to drink bitter herbs. It was a plant with a bitter taste. And this is often used metaphorically for bitterness and sorrow throughout the scriptures. But where else do we see this language used? Jesus. This language is used In Psalm 69, a psalm of lament. There is one who has suffered for wrongs he has done and his enemies make it worse. Sounds very similar to the funeral poems of Lamentations. In Psalm 69, David shows the proper response to such trial. And in verse 21, he says this. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me Vinegar to drink. Similar words. And it was this psalm that Christ's disciples remember when he had driven the merchants and money changers from the temple in John 2. It was this psalm that the Apostle Paul applied to Jesus in Romans 15.3 because Christ is the principal covenant member willing to suffer reproach for the sake of truth. This is Christ. It was the words of verse 21 that were taken by our Lord, who, while suffering in body and spirit, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And then he received drops of a sponge filled with sour wine that was extended to him on a hyssop, and put that wormwood, as it were, on his lips. In John 29, 30, it reads that upon receiving the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. My beloved, in Lamentations, in these verses, we find shadows of the Savior. The one whom Isaiah calls that suffering servant, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, we see him here. Christ is foreshadowed by that city of Jerusalem. He's been left alone. He was despised and rejected. Christ is foreshadowed by the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who expresses profound grief over Jerusalem. Think about this. 600 years later, it was recorded of our Lord that as he drew near, he saw the city. And what did he do? He wept over it saying, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. This is Christ, the true prophet, the perfect prophet, sympathizing with his people. So, beloved, when it seems your hope is perished, when it seems as if you don't know what to do, what to feel, what to think, remember Christ identifies with you. Jeremiah could not atone for the sins of those who wept. Jeremiah could not save those who perished under the attacks of the Babylonians. But there is one whose blood is sufficient to save you from your sin. To rescue you from the pit. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As you remember your affliction, remember Christ identifies with you. You say, but Christ didn't sin. And my answer to you is no, he did not sin, but he bore the sins of his people in their stead. So behold, the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the charity of his offering. Think about the sufficiency of his atonement. This is your Christ. And he was punished in your stead. My brothers and sisters, do not be like Jerusalem. This is the warning here. Don't be like Jerusalem. As our Lord said hundreds of years later, if only they had known the things that make for their peace. If only they had known. Christ was referring to himself. Christ is that prince of peace. But Judah missed Christ. Think about this. They missed Christ in the shadows. And we miss Christ. Often in the substance and the fullness of his glory. We have more revelation and yet we can so easily forget Christ. That Christ took the wormwood. Christ took the gall so that even when we suffer we are not consumed. We are not swallowed up no matter how we may feel. So as the prophet Isaiah asks and encourages I exhort you, I ask you who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness? Who here walks in darkness and has no light as it were? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. My brother and sister, trust in him and rely upon your God. But you ask me, how in the world does one come to trust in the name of the Lord? How does one come to rely upon his God in the midst of the anguish, in the midst of the sorrow? How do I trust in the Lord when the storm rises so high, when the sins pile up so deep? How do you trust in the name of the Lord when your pain could not grow any worse? Recall. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in Him. I want you to note two things. First, how you recall. That's verses 21 to 23. How you recall. And second, who you recall. Verse 24. Verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. There was one Italian reformer who declared, The distress that was mentioned was final, an antidote to despair is administered. Never can faith give up. That's what we see here. You ask, how was this called to mind? In the midst of the darkness, in the sorrow and the pain, it was the grace of faith. The truths that follow were brought back to the heart through the grace of faith. And from where does that grace come? the sheer compassion of the lord it is not the size of your faith beloved it is the simplicity of his compassion behold it you say your faith is small it just might be there are times my faith is small but our god is not big our god just is it literally reads jeremiah confesses the lord's mercies throughs not even there The Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. How does Jeremiah call this to mind? It's the Lord's mercies. This confession is one of the most extraordinary teachings of the Old Testament. Though Israel sinned against the Lord in idolatry, immorality, oppression, and other forms of covenant adultery, the Lord forgives the penitent. We heard it earlier. He forgives the covenant, the, the penitent covenant. member. why? A verse that we all hear often and can so easily gloss over. Because the one who confesses their sin, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is just to forgive of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just some. And you ask, but how is that? Because there is one covenant member who is perfect covenant head and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ was consumed according to his humanity so that all his people, not just some, all his people receive mercy upon mercy, not just one day, day after day, not just for years, forever. Forever. Again, we see Christ here in the shadows. But what what is this mercy? Bobbing said, the goodness of God when shown to those in misery is called mercy. But this mercy is no creaturely heart misery that involves just one man feeling and then acting upon that feeling. No, we must distinguish the mercy of a creature and the mercy of God. You see, mercy is in God, but it's not in God as it is in you and me. In fact, it is superior to mercy in man. Man is merciful, think about it, because he has been called. He's been moved to mercy, but God just is merciful. He's merciful how? From the plentiful fullness of his infinite goodness. Creatures get tired of showing mercy the most loving creature to you in this world, gets tired of showing you mercy. But as one said, God is not subject to such weakness. Notice the words, fail not. This is your God. Never cease. That's never. This means, as one theologian said, as God is infinite, So all things attributed to him are limitless, such as his goodness and his compassion. His task is to vanquish all those things that work toward our destruction. This is what he vanquishes. You see, if it was not for the Lord who established an eternal covenant purchased by the blood of God incarnate, it would have been all over for us. But that's just not so. Because regardless of what you may see, regardless of what you may think or feel, it's just not the case. As our text affirms, His mercies are new every morning. That includes the morning of suffering. That includes difficult Sabbath days. That includes mornings and evenings of anguish and grief. But I ask you, do you believe that? You say, yes, but, and I say, but? Beloved, there is no day that lacks fresh proof of His compassion to you. Not just every day, but as it has been said, every moment in time is evidence of His compassion to you. So I ask you, to count those temporal and spiritual mercies. Count them with me. Consider this. The Lord of heaven and earth, whom you have sinned against, once hated and despised, according to his good pleasure, he has saved you. He has saved you from the pits of destruction. He has given you the gift of faith in Christ. He has washed you of your sin. He has robed you in his perfect righteousness. He has made you partaker of the divine nature. And that's not all. You have life. Today, you have life. You have breath. You have being. You have clothes upon your back. You have food in your belly. A home to lay your head. Resources of safety and health and travel. Family and friends. Not to mention, you have this church. Grace Family Baptist Church. You have here the communion of saints, the ordinary means of grace, and the resurrection to come. And that just scratches the surface. And so what can we say in response to these things? But in a weak and creaturely way that falls so short of the sheer wonder and glory of His being and His works, we say, Great is your faithfulness. In the original language, the second half of verse 23, the copula is, isn't there. And so this statement reads more like a response of praise. It says, great your faithfulness. You see, all merits are excluded here. The Lord alone supplies everything promised here. The people of Judah were not going to be swept away unless the Lord Jesus foreshadowed here by the intercession. That's what we see here. By the intercession of the prophet Jeremiah unless the Lord Jesus came for us from them. You see, the people's sins could not rescind. They could not remove the Lord's promise. Think of Romans 3. The Apostle Paul asks, for what if some, he's referring to Israel, what if some did not believe? Paul asks, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. My friends, our faithfulness, it just ebbs and flows. Our faithfulness cannot equal God's Faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his very perfection. And we're still speaking in a creaturely way. Because all that is in him is him. The faithfulness of God is properly understood under the perfection of his goodness. You see, God doesn't have goodness. He is goodness himself. The measure of all goodness. Psalm 119.68 says of God, You are good and do good. This means that all the goodness he communicates, it causes no reduction, no change in God himself. As our confession reads, God having all goodness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, Unto and upon them. So let me ask you if He is who He is, and you are where you are, creaturely, finite, cast to and fro, susceptible to the fires of trial, the spirit so willing, but the flesh so very weak, if you see the Lord so faithful, beloved, who else should you seek? Who else? There we have briefly observed how we recall. And how is it? God. But who do we recall? When it seems your hope is perished and you don't know what to do, recall the confession of verse 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in Him. This confession that the Lord is my portion takes us back to the book of Numbers 18, verse 20. God tells the Levites that they have no inheritance or portion in the land. But he doesn't end there. He says, I am your portion. The Levites had to abandon all other plans for inheritance to know that the Lord is their portion. And by this confession, we remind ourselves that the Lord is God and our God. He is our creator and our redeemer. He's the one who made us and saved us. And I ask you, if God is for us, then who can be against us? No one. If God is for us, who can satisfy us? No one else. But since God is for us, our creator in our Redeemer. Therefore, we hope in Him. You see, the Christian's hope in God is a gift of God, whereby we choose the eternal good of union with God. It's not just wishful. It's hope in God based on that very union with Him. And He is the object. And this is all the work of God Himself. He is working in us to bring us back to himself. And he's doing this all according to his good pleasure. This is what we confess. This is who we recall when we say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. But I don't assume everyone in this room finds their portion in the Lord. My unbelieving friend, you have and will not hope in the Lord. There is nothing you can muster in and of yourself. You have not said in your soul, you are my portion. And the destruction described here in Lamentations, my unbelieving friend, is just a shadow of the eternal torment of the damned. The law is summed up in loving this God, loving neighbor, and doing so perfectly and perpetually. And you cannot do it, but Christ has. He perfectly obeyed the law. He's the one who drank the cup of suffering in order that sinners like you and me would drink the wine of salvation. So come, confess your sins, come and trust in Christ, and all your sins will be forgiven. And you will be accepted as righteous forevermore. Please abandon all other plans for inheritance. There is nothing in this world that satisfies. All other portions are just composed of bits. When we say the Lord is our portion, that's a simple portion. Not composed of parts like you and me. So abandon all other plans. And come and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your portion. Beloved, one day we will live in ceaseless praise. But now, for the most part, we live in lament. But did you know that lament is a form of praise? Bringing our sorrows to the Lord is a form of praise. It's okay to cry in worship. It's okay to pour out our hearts before the Lord. We're called to How is it a form of praise? By it, we are reminded and experience the creator-creature distinction. We are reminded that we are not God. God is not like us. We are reminded to have our vision recorrected. So often our sorrows and our pain and our struggles and our challenges and the trials they fog up our vision. They blur our vision, we fail to see who God really is. And by it, more and more, we learn that the Lord is for us. And therefore, what else do we need? Calvin said, let us bear in mind this truth, that all our thoughts will wander and go astray until we are fully persuaded that God alone is sufficient for us. Beloved, if you're not satisfied with the Lord, you will be seized with impatience day after day. When trouble comes, you will complain in trial. You will wander and go astray. And so I ask you a question. I ask you a question that was asked hundreds of years ago. How much does it concern us all to make this portion ours? May we do so? We certainly may, each of us. But how? By a sincere, hearty, deliberate choice of it. Choose it, and you will have it. Thus Mary did. Mary hath chosen that good part. Now choosing one thing implies refusing another. We must refuse everything else that you can name and say of it, there is no portion for me. As the pleasures of sin are not. A merry, jovial, sensual, flesh-pleasing life is not. Merry company is not. Wine and music are not. Strong drink is not. Riding and drunkenness, chambering and wantonness are not. Away with these then. They are no portion for your soul. And the riches and honors of the world are not. Gold and silver are not, houses and lands are not, mammon is not, preferment is not, therefore covet them not, sit loose to them, live above them. Further, he says, our own merit and righteousness is not. It is a garment too narrow to cover us, a bed too short to stretch ourselves on, therefore we must deny it, not trust to it, not rely on it. What then must we take to? to Christ, and to him only. Choose him, that is, we must cordially accept of him on the terms on which he is offered. Come to him, roll ourselves on him, assent and consent to his laws and government, saying, none but Christ, none but Christ, none but Christ to justify, sanctify, rule, save me, none but Christ to be my prophet, my priest, my king. Listen to this. It is a sign God has chosen us for his portion when we have chosen him. And so I change my question. Not merely what will you do when it seems your hope has perished, but who will you choose when it seems as if you're walking in the dark and you can't seem to identify the light? When it seems your hope has perished, recall, even as you sorrow, the Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do bless you and we thank you for the encouragement of your word, for the rebuke of your word. We believe that Christ is present by your Holy Spirit. And Christ himself has preached peace to us. We ask for grace, O Lord, to believe that word, to lay it up in our hearts, to put it into practice in our lives. For we are to call from our soul, you, O Lord, our God, as our portion, not just in times of sorrow, but even in times of prosperity. For indeed from you and through you and to you are all things. Render to us, your people, increase of grace. Through Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, we pray.